Scripture reading tonight is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Be seated, please. Well, I'm very happy to be with you again this evening. Thank you for your attendance and for your participation in our worship tonight. And always very grateful uh, for the men that serve us and lead us in worship. And thank you for the singing stand and, and some very beautiful hymns that you've selected tonight. And thank you for the prayers, uh, Marvin and Jimmy, for the reading and all those that uh, took part in our worship. We're always very grateful uh, for you. And Scott, I'm happy to see you back with us uh, tonight. Scott just recently had an emergency surgery, and uh, every surgery seems to be a minor thing until it happens to me. Then it becomes a major surgery, and I'm sure that's the way uh, Scott felt about it, but we're happy you're, you're back with us, and happy to have your mother and father visiting with us, and all those who are visiting with us, we're delighted to have you. And I, I selected this passage out of Ephesians chapter 6, beginning verse 10 and going on through verse 12, because I felt like this is a passage that we need to spend serious time with, especially on the heels of a lesson like we had this morning uh, about being successful in living the Christian life. Uh, we talked this morning about the fact that we can get our life up and moving and really growing like God wants us to grow. And so much of the New Testament talks about spiritual growth and how that we should be growing spiritually and maturing. And a lot of that idea happens and is given to us in the book of Ephesians. But also given to us in the book of Ephesians and passages like that is the fact that we face a fierce and horrible enemy. And I wish I knew more about that. Uh, the passage that we have in front of us here should give us time to pause and consider the matter carefully. I'm in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm looking a little bit in the beginning moments of our study tonight at verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. Uh, the passive voice is used there for the word strong, be made strong. The Lord will make you strong. You can't stand by yourself, but you'll receive the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Use the word wrestle there. Uh, to wrestle now makes it a personal matter, uh, something that's done one-on-one, -on -one. Uh, talking about the armor of God and the army of God sort of talks about the collective ability of the church together, but now it's gotten to be a, a personal matter whereby the devil, a very real being, is trying to do his best to undermine me and my soul, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. I wish I knew more about that. Uh, Paul talks about these particular matters, the, the uh, wicked elements that are in our world, uh, 
And this translation uses the word against the cosmic powers, and I think that's the proper way to render it, that there's a lot of darkness out there that's trying to destroy us spiritually against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you find a lot of, you find that phrase, heavenly places, used often in the book of Ephesians and in other passages. And throughout this world, in the course of this world, there are those elements that are there that are very real, that want to destroy us spiritually, that do not want us to grow, that want to kill us as far as our spiritual growth is concerned. We've got to be aware of that. Now, you read a lot in the newspapers, and you'll see a lot on the television about al-Qaeda, and you'll see about Iran and Iraq and the Taliban, and you'll see about the ISIS and terrorist groups. And we look at those terrorist groups, and we realize how horrible that is to act that way and to behave that way, to have such a low regard for human life. But what we're studying here tonight is far worse than anything we've heard of from them or about them, as bad and egregious as they are, and their behavior and lack of respect for others, still we face a horrible foe, every one of us personally and collectively as the body of Christ, and hence his reference in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. We must come to grips with this foe who wants to stop our spiritual progress, who wants to keep us from growing, who wants to destroy us spiritually. I heard one of these television evangelists saying how easy it was to live the Christian life. And when I heard him say that, I thought, is he reading the same Bible I'm reading? Uh, the Bible is telling me that we have a spiritual battle out there and that we need to be prepared for it and we need to understand it if we're going to be successful in opposing this foe. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, verse 12, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And even though I don't know a lot about that, and I don't understand everything about those phrases, still I can come to understand that they are very real and that it's out there, and that their destruction, my destruction, is their aim, my spiritual destruction. Peter spoke about this, 1 Peter chapter 5, and I want to turn to that for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm thinking about verse 8. And he warns the church who was faced with a great deal of suffering at the time, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now that Bible passage came from 1 Peter chapter 5 and the verse of verse 8. And it tells us very clearly that Satan is a real being and he wants to destroy us. And there are forces of wickedness out there that want to be our undoing. Uh, just any number of passages could be referenced in this matter, and if I may, let's take just a, a moment to, to talk about it. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, as I introduce the subject, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Isn't that an interesting verse? And again, I wish I knew more about that. I'm in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. And any number of passages could be cited with regard to the matter. Let me choose another. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think is a rather uh, interesting passage as to the nature of the wicked work of the devil and how he tries to destroy us. And Paul's giving us some insight, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14, about the matter. 
And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And not to go into any detailed discussion about this verse, other than to say that Satan wants to destroy us. Now he wants to do his best to stop any kind of spiritual growth that I might initiate and that God may help me with. And if I allow him to do it, he will destroy my soul. He'll destroy the soul of your family. He'll divide your family. He'll divide mother and father. He'll divide children from parents. He'll alienate spouses and children from each other. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy the Broadway Church of Christ. And he wants to kill any enthusiasm that the Broadway Church of Christ has toward growing spiritually and teaching others to do the same. Now, I don't think Satan's going to do this simply by getting right up in my face and shouting and screaming at me. I think that would be too obvious. Now that we've established the fact that Satan wants to destroy us and stymie any kind of spiritual growth that we might gather and gain by our study of the Scriptures and our application of it to our lives, how's he do it? How's he going to go about it? I just don't think he's going to be so obvious and forthright that he's going to uh, just get right in my face and say, I'm going to destroy you. Uh, I'm going to put you down. What was it in the Star Wars episode where the evil emperor uh, came across to the Federation and he said, I'm going to put down your evil rebellion and laughed and chuckled. You know, if Satan came to us like that, looking like such a horrible type of figure, you know, none of us would give in to Satan. It would be too obvious. Therefore, he uses his schemes. He uses his plans. The idea how? If I can better know what the strategy is on his part, I can overcome it. And I can be more successful in living the Christian life. And I can grow spiritually like I want to. And I'm not going to allow Satan to try to undermine the work that I've set for myself, aided with the text of the Bible, to grow like God wants me to grow. So I've seen from the pages of Paul and others how that he has this scheme to destroy me spiritually. How does he do it? One of the first things that he does, I think this is right at the top of the list. He's going to try to convince us and others that we should do things his way rather than God's way. Do things my way rather than the way God has given me. And hasn't that been the number one strategy from the very beginning? I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter 3. And there's that tree in the midst of the garden. And God tells Adam and Eve, now don't eat of that tree. Now you may eat of all the trees and they're in the garden, but of that particular tree, do not eat of it. But what does he do? He comes and tempts Eve. He comes and tells Eve, now look at this fruit. Isn't it good to look upon? Isn't it enticing to make one wise? And she falls for that. Instead of doing things God's way, she did things her way. She wanted that. She gave to her husband. And he also was guilty of eating. Equally guilty as she was. That's Satan's strategy from the very beginning. If he can convince me that I ought to do things my way rather than God's way, then he'll destroy me. He'll destroy my soul. He'll destroy any spiritual progress 
that I might make. Now, I might try to deceive myself and think of myself being great and spiritual and close to God and have all kinds of feelings about that, but if I'm not doing it God's way, I'm not close to God. I'm getting further away from God. And one of his great schemes and one of his great strategies to try to prove that to me caused me to believe that if I will do things my way rather than God's way, do it his way rather than God's way, then he's won. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Paul warns about the matter. In about verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's been very clear. That's been Satan's strategy from the beginning. You and I on Wednesday night are studying from the book of James, and I don't think that there's a better passage in the Bible other than this one in James chapter 1, 14 and 15, that talks about this matter of how sin really begins to grow in my life. And I'll read it briefly and not make a lot of comment about it, James 1 and 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Well, here Paul very plainly tells us that Satan's desire is that I look upon this matter in my way rather than God's way, and for that reason, when he can get me to do it that way, then he's won the battle. Every decision which congregations must make through the elders of the congregation, and every decision which we must make as individuals of the congregation, are really based on two matters. And the very first matter is always got to be, is it scriptural? Do we have authority for it? Now, if we can't answer in the affirmative for that, then we need to leave it where we found it. Satan would try to get us to say, you know, do it your way. Ah, you see what they're doing over there? You do it your way. You do it their way. Let's do it our way rather than God's way. And I don't care what the situation might happen to be or whatever the decision has to be focused on or happens to be focused on. Satan is trying to use the very ploy that he used against Adam and Eve on us. And he's been more successful than he should have been. We've allowed him to do that more than we should. The first question that ought to be first and foremost in our minds about any decision, has God authorized that matter? Uh, is that a scriptural matter? Can we decide whether the Bible's teaching that or not? If the New Testament's not teaching that, then leave it where you found it. Now, if you can come to the conclusion, yes, the Bible does teach this. The New Testament does authorize this. Then you've got to ask, answer the question, is it an expedient matter? Is it something that I can do? Am I capable of doing that? Is a congregation capable of doing that? Sometimes it may be yes, and sometimes it may be no. The decision which elders have to make with regard to the local congregation and we have to make with regard to our own spiritual well-being sometimes will be no. Well, they used to do it this way. Well, that was a different time. Maybe it doesn't work this way now. Maybe we need to do something else. If it is scriptural and we find that it is, then we need to really think hard about, is this the best way to do this? And if it is, then we do it. If we're capable of doing it, then we proceed. It may be that it's not a good idea for us. It may be that we're not capable of doing it. Maybe they did it 30 years ago that way or 40 years ago that way, but that doesn't mean we necessarily want to do it that way now. Maybe we can do it in a better way, a more efficacious, effective way, and we need to use our very best thought on how best to accomplish the will of God in our life so as we do not violate God's holy 
and inspired word. What we've got to do, we've got to look at every decision, and we cannot allow ourselves to fall into this strategy that Satan has. Do it your way rather than God's way. He's won that battle too many times, and we can't afford to let him do that again. But there's another strategy that he's got. Ah, he's won here too many times. If Satan wants to stop the growth of the church and personal growth of individual Christians, this is a classic way he uses to do that. The classic way is so discord, seeds of discord and division among brethren. I was watching a, um, a National Geographic program. I like to watch the animals. I love the animals. Now, Carol likes the rocks, but I like the animals, and I like to watch the animals. I show a lot of this on National Geographic, interesting program, and this happens to be in Africa. And the buffalo, I, I think I'm getting these terms right, certain kind of buffalo up there, these big animals, huge animals. The lion comes in. Uh, it's amazing that a lion could take down one of these water buffaloes or whatever they are, cape buffaloes or whatever they're called. But these buffalo, to defend themselves, will lock their horns together. And the lions will run around the circle. They'll put the young ones, the more defenseless ones, in the center of the circle, protecting them. And these buffalo will lock their horns together side by side and face the lions. And those lions know better than to attack that buffalo with his horns bearing down upon him. And so they'll run around the, uh, the circle. And sometimes buffalo are like people. Some of those buffalo don't want to cooperate with the other buffalo, and they won't lock their horns together, and the next thing you know, they stampede. And when the lions can find a gap, they'll charge into the gap and attack the defenseless young ones. And they know this. They know that by running around, they might be able to instill, instill fear in the hearts of some of those buffalo, and by that, create a gap. By creating a gap, they're able to infiltrate the herd kill and eat. And I watched that and I thought about the church of the Lord. Whenever a congregation's doing well, Satan runs around that group faster and faster looking for a gap. If he can find a gap in the crowd, Someone who's filled with some bitterness, a hard-hearted spirit, then he'll exploit that. And he'll sow seeds of discord among the group. And by that time, infiltrate and destroy. The book of Philippians is an interesting book. It's one of the prison epistles. And there's not a negative word, I suppose, in that great um, epistle. I guess in chapter, uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, there's hardly a negative word in that entire book. It's a very positive um, passage of Scripture, and you get to chapter 4. And he mentions two sisters there in Philippians 4 and 2. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
You see, Paul sees there, there's a fuss among these Christian women. They're creating a gap. And if the gap continues to be created, then the destroyer is going to come in and try to destroy this wonderful church at Philippi. We cannot allow seeds of discord to create a gap among us as Christians. We've got to be strong. We've got to be together. There, in turn, defeat the wiles of the devil and this scheme that he has in mind. Now, some people love to argue. They love to argue about the Scripture. And it's one of their favorite things to do. In fact, they'll argue at the drop of a hat. And, in fact, they'll even drop the hat because they want to argue about this. And sometimes a person who's a new Christian, they've been baptized into Christ, they're very much in the argumentative mood. And they want to argue about this and they want to argue about that. And you'll see them uh, and talk to them. They'll be in Bible class and now they've got all kinds of questions and they want to argue about this and argue about that. But the Bible is telling us, you know, not, don't be engaged in a senseless haggle and wrangle over the Bible. All it does is just create a needless kind of gap. It sows seeds of discord. Romans chapter 12 and 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And so verse 16 is giving us some practical application in the matter of Christian living. Do not let Satan foster gossip. Do not let Satan foster hearsay. Do not let Satan create a gap in the body of Christ where he can infiltrate and thus destroy the body because that's what he wants to do. Now, a congregation out there that's not doing anything, a congregation out there that is dying for lack of enthusiasm and a lack of desire and a lack of the word of God, he's going to leave alone. They're already on the way out. But a congregation who's trying to do something, who's trying to work, who's trying to make a difference in their own lives and the lives of other people, he's going to do his best to find a gap, a weak spot. And this is one of the big ones right here. Sowing seeds of discord, where we talk about each other behind each other's back. The Bible condemns that for good reason. It can destroy the people of God. And you know what happens when people talk about each other? They start holding grudges. They hold grudges, and they start to prejudice themselves against one another. And that's a terrible thing to do. I was made aware of this one time. I was preaching for a congregation of God's people, and well, I preached there for some time. And I realized that uh, everybody has their favorite pew and their favorite section to sit in. I have mine, you have yours, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I began to notice that this group over here wasn't talking to that group over there. And I began to realize that there's some members of this congregation who won't even talk to each other. They won't have any fellowship with each other. They won't talk to each other. And it's almost like speaking to two different congregations. That kind of thing. Grudges. Prejudices against one another. The kind of things that have caused Satan to win in the battle against us and our soul. We can't allow that to happen. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, because you have love one for another. That's John chapter 13, verse 35. Now notice what he said in the heart of that verse, John 13, 35. By this shall all men know. How do others know that we are the disciples 
of Christ, those who are followers of Christ, they will see that in us. They will see how we treat each other. They will see how we relate to each other. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples, how you love one another. And the community is watching, and they know. You can't fool the community about how the church is treating one another. Uh, you might be able to think you can fool it. You might be able to think that you can pull the wool over others' eyes, but you can't do it. They can see through that. People are not dumb. People are smart, and they can see how we relate one to another. They can see whether we love one another or not. We can surely convey that kind of image to a community, and if a community sees, those people don't love each other. Those people hold grudges against one another. What's that going to do to the message that we have to the community? If we have that kind of feeling one toward another, let's drop it right now because it will stymie our work. It will thwart the purpose God has for us as the body of Christ, and it will cause me to fail to grow and mature like Christ wants me to grow and mature. If I've got something against you, you've got something against me, let's sit down and, and work it out in keeping with Matthew chapter 18, just like the Bible tells us to do it. Let's don't hold these grudges. I think I preach for congregations where the people wouldn't even talk to each other. Sat down to eat lunch with a preacher one time in Memphis, Tennessee. Several of us were there, and I enjoyed the conversation. I'm just sitting there listening. He's telling of the problems that the congregation had. Congregations have problems because we have to relate to one another, and we have to work with one another. And we grow in maturity to try to do it the right way. Um, this particular congregation, one of the elders, I guess, had his uh, belly full, and he told the other elder his son was nothing but a red-headed punk. And that created a grudge that lasted for years. They continued to worship together, I don't know how, and I'm sitting there thinking, just as a young preacher, how in the world did they want to just straighten it out? This elder ought to go to this other elder and say, look, I'm sorry for what I said. I spoke out of turn. Forgive me. I want to make it right. Be humble and honest and sincere enough to make it right. I said the wrong thing. I apologize. I apologize right now. Tell me what I need to do to make this thing right. The other fellow ought to let it go. That particular matter comes along. He said, look, I took offense at what you said about my son. Let's get this, let's sit down. Let's don't leave this building tonight until we get this straightened out properly according to the will of God. Do we have the humility of heart and mind to resolve our differences so that we can go forward with the church of God and the maturity of our own spiritual growth? Or are we going to hold grudges and let the devil win in one of his very famous schemes? to destroy the work of the church of the living God. Grudges and prejudices begin to grow, and guess what happens? We start discouraging one another. We're discouraging one another because we're murmuring and we complain. This is one of his hot topics here, the devil's M.O., his method of operation. This is how we'll uh, stop this church from growing. This is how we're going to stop these people from growing spiritually and maturing like God wants them to mature, we'll get them to complaining and murmuring. Children of Israel left the land of Egypt under God's power and the leadership of Moses, and they go to uh, Kadesh Barnea. And as they go to Kadesh Barnea, Numbers chapter 13, 
The Israelites have crossed the Red Sea, and now they're ready to go into the land of promise which God had given them. And God gave them wise advice. Pick out a spy from each one of the twelve tribes, let them go out and spy out the land, and come back and give a report, and so they did. And they found that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, let's go in there and take that land, because with God on our side, we can do it. God's told us to do it, let's go ahead and do it. But ten of those spies said, no, we can't do it. The city walls are high and strong, and the Anakim live there. The Nephilim live there. Nephilim simply a Hebrew word for giants. They are giants, and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't take this land. And the Amorites are there, and the Hittites are there, and the Jebusites were there. And you know the ten spies murmured and complained enough that it actually affected the whole nation. A million and a half people, at least, probably more, so much so that they wouldn't go in there. The murmurs and the complainers can do that. It is a tool of Satan. It is a strategy he uses to keep a church from growing like it ought, to keep a church from doing what it ought to do, to keep you from growing like you ought to grow. He is a wicked adversary, and he wants to destroy you, and he'll do it by getting you to complain and getting you to murmur and trying to say, oh, we can't do that. We shouldn't be doing that particular matter. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and 6, this thing's written down for your example. This thing was not just written as a history book back here in the pages of Numbers, but it's written down for us to live by and learn by it. Passage again, 1 Corinthians 10 and 6. Need to be careful. Don't be a complainer. Don't be a murmurer. I read of a missionary couple. They were doctors, husband and wife, Tina. It's been a long time since I read this, and I can't remember the names and that kind of thing. It was in India. And here again is one of the animal stories that I've got because I like the animals. But they pitched their tent <coughs> out on the remote parts of India. They were helping the people. They were wonderful missionary-type people, though I'm not saying that they were Christian people, as the New Testament teaches, but they were missionary-type people, and they were very giving people. And they learned from the local natives, always put a fire at the entrance of your tent to keep the animals away at night. And they did that for some time. But on one night, the fire burned out, and a tiger came out of the bush and killed them both. Went in the tent and killed both of them. That's what will happen when a fire in a church goes out. The devil comes in, and he'll destroy that church through as the world because the love and the devotion and the zeal can no longer be found in that body. One of his great strategies, we see this so much. I need to be served rather than me serve somebody else. You see, this is a very consumer-oriented kind of society, isn't it? Uh, we look at a product, and we think, that's what I want. Is this the best one that I can possibly get for the money? And uh, then we make our decision to buy it, and that's just the way our society is. We're a very product-oriented society. But I think sometimes we've kind of 
allowed that to slip over and slosh over into the church, and we're kind of a product-oriented society with regard to the church, and we start church shopping, and we say, well, what can this church do for me? Not what I can do to help the church grow and to help these people grow and to worship God and, and to sing praises to him with these beautiful songs. I, I just really love the way this congregation sings out. I, I'm very grateful for every one of you and the wonderful love you have and expressive way you sing these beautiful songs. Singing from the heart. But when we start getting this consumer attitude about the church. What am I going to get out of this? Come in, sit down, fold our arms. All right, impress me. Let's see how good that song leader can lead singing. Let's impress me. Now let's see how good that preacher is. Let's, let's see if that preacher can impress me. See, I'm, I'm trying to see what I can get out of it. This is a very common tactic that Satan has. In Matthew chapter 20, about verse 27, 28, Jesus gives us instruction regarding this attitude. It's as old as a scripture, isn't it? Matthew 20 and 27, And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. The humility of Jesus, teaching humility among his disciples. The passage is Matthew 20, and the verses 27 and verse 28, and I hope you read it, and I hope you... Take it to heart, Jesus in John chapter 13 took a towel and a basin of water and he washed the disciples' feet. A visual aid, if you will, of humility. Not to come into a congregation and say, all right, now what you guys got to offer me? But I've come to a place where I can worship God acceptably, together, with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ, according to the scriptures. What can I do? To help the church grow. What can I do to help others grow? What can I do to help brothers and sisters in Christ to grow and to be more like Christ every single day? Rather than, what am I going to get out of this? We have a lot of people come and visit us Broadway, and I'm very grateful for them. And we try to make our visitors very uh, welcome, and I hope you feel that way. I hope you feel welcome. I hope you're impressed with the fact that we love Jesus Christ and that we love the Word of God, the Bible. That we're working very hard to understand it and live it every day. And we encourage each other. Are we perfect? No, we're not. Oh, we need the grace of God. Thankful for that. Not that we deserve it. We surely don't, but we desperately need it. And we shall receive it based on our obedient faith as we turn to him and follow him as we should. This consumer attitude about the church is a strategy Satan will use against us to cause us to fail, and we cannot allow him to do it. And here's one I think that all of us need to understand very carefully. Satan will cause us to lose this battle for our souls if we start focusing on the trivial and we forget the importance of great matters. I had a professor a long time ago at Harding Graduate School. He said, do not 
major in the minors. And I thought that's a pretty good statement. Do not major in the minors. He was a great man of God. I thought the world of him, Brother Dr. W.B. West. I was a pallbearer at his funeral. And he kind of took me in hand, and he kind of taught me, and he kind of, he was kind to me, and he kind of helped me see great things and lessons from the Bible. He opened my eyes up to the book of Revelation. I'll always be indebted to him for that because he helped me understand it, a book I'd never seen before or was afraid to study. But now because of his guidance and tutelage, I can understand that book and work on it as I should. Dr. W.B. West, perhaps someone in your life has been the kind of person who helped you focus on the important things and not so much on the trivial things of life. If Satan can do that, if he can take our eyes off of that cross and the one who died on that cross, he will win in the battle for our souls. And he works at that all the time. You know, Satan can't stand the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ means forgiveness. The cross of Christ, when responded to properly, means salvation. And he can't stand that. He can't stand Calvary. And he knows that every blood-bought warrior who looks and focuses on that cross and does not allow the trivial matters of life to interfere, but he keeps his gaze fixed on Jesus, will defeat Satan. And will be able to say to Satan, get away from me, Satan. And he'll have to flee. Now, I know what I'm talking about because the Bible says so. In James chapter 4, I want to read for you verse 7 and verse 8. Notice what this inspired writer says about that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. The double-minded man is a man who one day believes, the next day doesn't believe. One day he's got faith, the next day doesn't have faith. Purify your heart, get the sin out of your heart, and live a kind of faithful, obedient life. And you can say to the devil, no. And the devil will not be able to resist you. He will flee from you. You have that power armed with Christ and with God. Focus on the important things and not the trivial things. And you'll be able to resist the devil and all of his schemes. For somebody to get on television and say, oh, that's easy to live a Christian life. I don't know what Bible he's reading. The Bible is telling us it's going to take every bit of our ability, every bit of our intelligence, every bit of our devotion and dedication to remain faithful and to grow because the enemy out there is fierce. He's like a roaring lion running around and around looking for a gap to get into the body of Christ, to get into your life and destroy you. And not just you your spouse, your children, your family, the congregation. You have to say, no, I will submit to God 
and I will resist the devil. You have that power to do that. You have the power tonight to make the choice to become a faithful child of God, to repent of the sin and confess your faith and be baptized into Jesus Christ, to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe he was raised from the dead by the power of God. I believe all that the Bible teaches me about Jesus. And I want to receive the benefits of the death of Christ and the blood of Christ. The blood that streamed down that old wooden cross can benefit me if by through faithful obedience of baptism, immersion in water, for the remission of sins, I submit to that and let the Lord add me to his church, not a denominational body, but the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. That's what I want. That's where I will be successful, as he is the savior of the body, the church. That opportunity is given to you tonight. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?